All right, we're coming back to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles, or if you have access to the copy of, of the Scriptures, would you join me in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah? Nehemiah chapter 4, we began uh, this book last week, and Hayden led us to uh, getting to know this leader named Nehemiah who comes to Jerusalem in order to, to lead the project of building the walls around that city. And walls protect and walls also define. These walls define the identity of this city, of this home uh, where God had promised to dwell with his people. And so we're going to look at the project of building uh, the wall uh, this morning. And so we're actually covering a section uh, that is chapters three and four and chapters six and seven. Uh, but I'm just going to read a few portions of these chapters. Uh, and so I'm going to read from chapter four, beginning in verse six, and I'll read to the end of chapter four, and then a brief portion uh, from chapter six. So Nehemiah has arrived in Jerusalem. He has surveyed the situation And then we'll pick up in Nehemiah 4, verse 6. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. When Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. And those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. 
So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Then there's an event in chapter five that we will come back to and talk about next week, but uh, the challenges, the opposition continue into chapter six until we get to uh, verse 15. And so chapter six, verses 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Let's pray. Father, that's our only hope right now. It's that the work would be accomplished with the help of our God, and so we ask for your help as we come to your word. Would you give us understanding how the account of these events so long ago speak to us even now? They speak to us about the week to come in our lives. But we need help to hear that, we need help to understand that, and we need even more help to apply that. And so we ask that you would open our minds and our hearts, open our eyes and our ears to receive your voice this morning through these words and to be changed by it. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. In dreams begin responsibilities. In dreams begin Responsibilities, those are the words of the poet William Butler Yeats. And I think those words could serve as a title for this part of the book of Nehemiah. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah are driven by a dream. They are driven by the dream of a city, the rebuilt city of Jerusalem where God had promised to dwell with his people, from where God had promised to fill all the world and transform all the world with his glory. And so these books are the story of a dream. But in dreams begin responsibility. And so, in the book of Ezra, the people build the center of this dream city, the temple. And now, in the book of Nehemiah, they take up the responsibility of building the edge, the boundary of this city, which serves as not only protection, but the definition of the identity of this community. And as they undertake this responsibility, they find out something that anyone who's lived a little bit and paid attention finds out. They find out that dreams are easy. Responsibility, not so much. Lots of people dream of becoming a doctor until they encounter the responsibility of learning organic chemistry. <laughs> Uh, lots of people dream of becoming a musician until they encounter the responsibility of da daily scales and arpeggios. And so the people, as they pursue the dream of this city here in this part of the book of Nehemiah, they encounter the incredible difficulties of the responsibilities involved in pursuing that dream. 
Those words by Yeats, in dreams begin responsibilities, could serve not only as a title of this part of the book of Nehemiah, but they could also serve as a title for the lives of people who belong to Jesus. Those words could serve as a title for our life together as a, the, as a church, as the community of Jesus. Because Jesus gives us the dream. He makes us a part of the dream. We belong to this dream of a city where God dwells and from where God will fill and transform the world with his glory. Jesus says to us in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. And then he shows John at the end of the New Testament in the book of Revelation, he shows him a dream. He shows him a vision of where the story is going, where the story of our lives, where the story of what God is doing will end. And where does it end? With a city. The completed, beautiful city of God, the new Jerusalem, descending, dwelling transforming all things with God's glory. We belong to the dream, but dreaming is easy. And in that dream that Jesus makes us a part of is the beginning of responsibilities for us. It is the gift of work to do. Dreaming is easy, responsibilities not so much. And so that's what I want us to talk about this morning. I want us to face the difficulties of the work that Christ has given us to do in pursuing the dream of this city. And so we'll look at this part of Nehemiah and ask a couple of questions. What are those responsibilities that we have been given and how do we fulfill those responsibilities? So first of all, what are these responsibilities? And we find in Nehemiah two basic ones. And the first responsibility is the responsibility to build. If you back up to Nehemiah chapter three, you will once again, as we often do in these books, find a list of names. But this list of names is an org chart. It is a list of job assignments. It is who Nehemiah assigned to build which part of the wall. And what's interesting about this list it is, is that it is not just a list of stonemasons. It is not a list of gate building experts. It is a list of everyone, from the high priest to the temple servants, from the goldsmiths to the merchants to the mayor of Jerusalem and even his daughters. Everyone is assigned work to do on the, on the wall. Everyone is involved. And as if to emphasize this point, Nehemiah makes sure to critically mention one group of nobles who were unwilling to stoop, unwilling to bend the neck, unwilling to humble themselves in order to participate in the work. And this is more than just a practical strategy. This is more than just many hands make light work. This is a vision. This is a picture of what should be the case all the time. 
what should be the case even when the wall is done. Because see, when the wall is done, there's a space between the center of the city and the edge of the city. And that space needs to be filled with homes and businesses and other institutions, a community, not just a physical structure, but a community that displays, that expresses the goodness and the wisdom of God's design for how people should live together. And everyone has a responsibility to be involved in that task. And so even when the wall is done, even when they return to their particular jobs and homes and neighborhood, they were still unified. They should still be unified in their diverse set of circumstances in that goal, the pursuit of building this city that shows the world the beauty of God. But as they embrace this responsibility to build, they find out that they need to add another responsibility. And it is the responsibility to fight. Or at least the responsibility to be prepared to fight. We saw this in Ezra and we see this throughout scripture. Whenever God's people engage in the work that he has given them to do, there is always resistance. There is always opposition. There are always enemies. And that is once again the case here in the book of Nehemiah. And these enemies mock the people. They say, what are these feeble Jews doing? The beginning of chapter four. Do they think that they can make these broken down stones alive again? But they not only mock, they also threaten and they plot violence against the people. There's an assassination plot at the beginning of Chapter six against Nehemiah, they plot violence against the people in order to interrupt the project of building the wall. And so in response, Nehemiah organizes a system of vigilance. He organizes a system of watching, of being ready, of being prepared for these enemies, but just Uh, Just as with the responsibility of building, the responsibility of fighting involves everyone, right? He does organize some particular groups dedicated to guarding, but then he gives swords to everybody so that those who continue to work on the wall have a tool in one hand and a sword in the other or a sword strapped to their belts, watching, vigilant, ready, And then a trumpet player follows Nehemiah around and he says, whenever you hear that sound, even though we're spread out, I want you all to rally, everyone rally to that point, ready to fight, ready to go. No spectators. Everyone involved in the responsibilities of building and fighting. And these responsibilities do not end in the book of Nehemiah. These responsibilities extend to to us, to those who belong to Jesus. Because the images and and the language of building and fighting extend into the New Testament. So for example, in the book of Ephesians, 
Paul imagines our life, he sees our life together as a church, as built, as a building for the dwelling place of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone of Christ. But he imagines that building expanding and growing, and how does it do that? How is that building built? Paul switches the metaphor to a body, and what is a city? It's a body of people. And he says that the body of Christ is built up through the diverse gifts that the Spirit gives to the people of God, all joined together in one purpose, in one goal. As we use the gifts that the Spirit has given to us to love and serve one another, and then as we take that love and service to even those who are beyond the household of faith, the body of Christ, the building that is the dwelling place of God, is built up in love, Paul says. But then he also says at the end of the letter that as we engage in the responsibility of building, there will be resistance. There will be opposition. There will be enemies. Only now, our enemies are not other people. Please hear that. Our enemies are not other people people. Paul says in Ephesians that our enemies are not flesh and blood, but they are the powers and the principalities, the accuser himself. And so the weapons that we use are not physical swords, but it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So if you are in Jesus, you bear the responsibility of building and fighting. Those responsibilities are for everyone. See, there's a danger to this moment when I'm up here standing and talking and you're sitting and listening. And the danger is that it would communicate that the building of the city of God is my responsibility and not yours. But no, these responsibilities, this call is for everyone who is in Jesus. Sports betting has been in the news in the past few months because the state of Ohio and some other states have uh, decreased the restrictions on certain types of gambling. And uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, that has led to some issues. But it's also made me think, why are we attracted to sports betting. Why are some people attracted to putting money on games? And I think it's more than money. It's more than the possibility of making some money. And I think it's also more than just the thrill of the risk. I think people are attracted to sports betting because we have a desire not to remain a spectator. There is a deep human desire in us for involvement. Not to stay on the sidelines, but to have a stake in something that is happening and in something that matters. So can you see, as Christ calls you to build and to fight, can you hear how he calls to that desire? And he says, yes, you are involved. There are no spectators. 
in the building of the city of God, in the pursuit of that dream. It's why last week when we baptized Artemis, I had you all stand up and take a vow to assist Tim and Carmen as they raise Artemis. It's because there are no spectators. Everyone's involved. Everyone's on the wall. Tool in one hand, sword in the other. But what happens when the people embrace these responsibilities? What happens as a result of the resistance that they face? Chapter four, verse 10, it says that their strength began to fail. And they said, there's too much rubble. That phrase is underlined in my Bible because I so relate to that. Don't you? There's too much rubble. When I consider the work that God has given me to do, that God has given us to do, I tend to think and to say, there's too much Rubble, and remember that this rubble is the result of the people's sin. It is a judgment of God on their sin. And so when I look at the mess of my sin and the mess of a sin-shattered world, I tend to think there's too much rubble. So what do we do? What do we do with our failing strength in the work that God has given us to do? Well, let's ask a second question. If our responsibilities are to build and to fight, how do we fulfill those responsibilities? And I want you to notice how Nehemiah, he doesn't just organize, he doesn't just strategize, he doesn't just equip, he also redirects the attention of the people. He says to them in chapter four, verse 14, do not be afraid. How is that possible? How is it possible not to be afraid? It is fear, it is anxiety, it is worry that is sapping their strength. But how is it possible not to be afraid? Well, they have to redirect their attention because if they continue to look at the rubble, if they continue to look at the enemies, they will continue to be afraid. And so how is it possible not to be afraid, Nehemiah says? Remember. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And then he goes on in verse 20 to say, when the trumpet sounds, I want you to rally to that sound. But how is that possible? How is it possible to have the confidence and the courage to do that? It says, our Lord will fight for us. That's how it's possible. And in doing this, Nehemiah was not an innovator. And he's not just a delusional optimist putting up the silly motivational poster in the break room. No, Nehemiah, he is following the rowboat principle. In a rowboat, you have to look backwards in order to move forwards. And so here in this passage, Nehemiah sounds an awful lot like Moses. 
As the people stood and faced an impassable body of water and as the Egyptian army was crashing down on them and the people were understandably terrified, Moses says to the people, fear not. How is that possible? We'll stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you. And so Nehemiah, he looks backwards at who God has been so that they can move forward assured that God will continue to be that for his people, that just as he fought for his people in the Exodus, he would once again fight for his people as they built the wall and faced these enemies. But this is risky. This is a risky approach because what Nehemiah says could produce passivity. If God is going to fight, then I'm going to take a seat. Right? And it would be easy to do that if you read Exodus 14 because Moses does say, stand still, stay quiet, don't do anything. God will fight for you. But that changes in Exodus chapter 17. The people are once again attacked by enemies, and now Moses comes to Joshua and his boys and says, strap on your swords and go fight. Why? Had God ceased to fight for them? Well, no, as Joshua and his boys go to fight, Moses goes up the hill and lifts his hands up to heaven. And the point of that gesture and and the reason why when Moses' hands are lifted, they win, and when they drop, they lose, the reason for that is that the Lord of hosts hasn't ceased to fight for them, but now he is fighting through them. He is now fighting, and the heavenly hosts are fighting through their efforts. And that's what's happening in Nehemiah. That's what's happening in our lives. That's why there's all these both ands in this passage. It is both remember the Lord, remember that he is great and awesome, and then do what? Fight for your brothers, for your families, for your homes. That's why he says rally to the trumpet, but how do you do that? Assured that the Lord will fight for you, and in order to embrace the responsibilities that Christ has given to us, in order to do the work that he has given us to do, we must embrace that both and. That both, there is work to do, there is a battle to be fought, and God is at work through that. God is fighting through our efforts. My parents are on their way to visit us. They'll arrive later this evening. And uh, them coming to visit has meant over the past several days and even today there is work to be done. Uh, There are chores, there's cleaning to be done to prepare our house in order to host them. But you know I've noticed something about house chores, cleaning, and yard work. Those tasks are a better experience than they used to be. And they are a better experience than they used to be because of the magic of Bluetooth. 
because now I can take a speaker or a set of headphones and I can do those mundane, boring tasks while hearing something that's beautiful, exciting, or interesting. And it changes the experience of that work. It changes the motivation to do that work. So church, there is work to be done. So put on the headphones that play the music of the gospel. And it will change the experience of that work. It will change the motivation to do that work. As you see the amount of rubble, as you see the need to build, can you hear Jesus saying, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. As you see the deceptive power of the enemy, will you hear Paul reminding you in the book of Colossians that Christ on the cross has already disarmed the powers and principalities, putting them to open shame, triumphing over them. The victory has been won. It is simply now being implemented in your life through what Christ is doing in and through you. Follow the real boat principle. We need to move forward, but we must look back to the cross because on the cross we find out that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Put on the headphones that will play for you the music of what Christ has done, is doing, and will do. It won't make the responsibilities easy, but it does assure us of the certainty of the dream. It assures us that in our feeble attempts, Christ has begun a work that he will certainly and beautifully finish in us. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege for us to realize that you have made us a part of what you are doing, of how you are renewing all things. You have made us a part of building this city that displays your goodness and your beauty. You have given us work to do. And every area of our lives is a part of that work. What a privilege. But we also have to acknowledge that that privilege is often such a weight, such a heavy weight and the burden gets so heavy. And we look around and we live under that oppressive refrain, there's too much rubble. There's too much of a mess. So even now, Father, would you draw our attention away from the amount of rubble, away from the power of the enemy, and to the sure truth that you are our fortress. You are our helper. 
You are our refuge. You have, you are, and you will fight for us. That our faltering, feeble efforts are enveloped, sustained, and will be brought to fruition through your work. That even now, the energy of Christ is given to us. Would you help us to work with his energy? With the assurance of his presence, of his work, and that he is God for us. Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.